0: All right, let's get started. You ready? How many of you came today because you know I'm talking about the end? You heard me preach last week, and you're like, I want to hear some more. I want to talk about this. This is an issue. This is something that's come up recently in my challenges and in my conversations with others. And, wow, we just went through this really weird season in the world. And it's like, wow, is Jesus coming soon? I'm not sure I should have used the Looney Tunes, the end, kind of theme. I feel like maybe you would be tempted to think I'm not taking it seriously enough. I take it very seriously, but that's all, folks. All right. <laughs> I didn't even plan that joke. Those are the best <laughs> ones. Really, what I want to explain to you is, yes, we want to learn what the Bible says about the end. We want to explore some of the theories about what that looks like, possibilities of what it means to fulfill some of these prophetic words that we see in books like Thessalonians and Revelation. And there's a lot of different ideas about that. And I don't think it's any accident that we spent quite a bit of time beforehand in Romans 14, which talks about how we relate over disputable matters. Because now we're venturing into something that is very disputable. It's not provable yet because it hasn't happened, at least for most people's perspective. So I want to begin with this, James chapter 5, verse 8. Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. This idea of being established is like firmly grounded, on a foundation. I I know what truth is, and, and so I can navigate whatever challenges come my way. We want our hearts to be firmly established. We value development around here. We all need to be growing up every day a little more in our relationship with Christ and our knowledge about Him and His ways. And so we want to establish ourselves firmly so that, as you know, the end is at hand. We want to be firmly grounded as it comes about. Now, the end has been at hand for 2,000 years now. They've been expecting the return of Christ, and we talked about that last week a little bit. I want to recap a few things that we want to be... De- developing in the Word of God so that we can be firmly established no matter what the circumstances around us are. And really, ultimately, at a heart level, that's a lot of my motivation about this series. It's not about proving one particular point about end times theory, about eschatology. That's not what it's about to me. To me, it's about examining the Word and us as Christians knowing who we are in that process and realizing we don't need to be afraid that we don't need to freak out, that we don't need to panic, that we don't need to be swept away with everything that comes along, but that we can remain firmly grounded in that process as the end draws near. And so we'll look at some scriptures about it. <clears throat> I also want to mention Ephesians chapter four, uh, verse fourteen, particularly. I'm going to read twelve and thirteen to you just for context, and it's talking about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, it's talking about these gifts that are given to the church for a purpose. Why do people have these gifts? Why are are we growing? Why are we developing? And it says, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain, attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's the key. So that we may no longer be Children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. One of the ideas of maturity for a believer is that they're not tossed about by the wind and the waves, that they're not swept off into this and that and the other, but they remain firmly established. So when we, as we know more and more, we have a, a relationship with Christ, a knowledge of Christ, and we're working together in unity towards those things. There's a solidity that we can have, like a ship on the sea. When the waves are battering against it, it's not just going to get turned here and there or swept this way or that, but it will remain steady and on course. That's a sign of maturity. We want to be working towards maturity. How do we do that? We've got to know what the Word of God teaches. And we have to know how to navigate it as we go. Very important when we start into a conversation about the end of time. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, the context of this is about food. We know that the Jews believed certain foods were unclean. Paul is challenging them. Do not argue about such things. The next verse, later in verse 14, says... That for the sake of food did not destroy the work of God, verse 20. So we begin to learn this principle that there are times where we are not going to agree, that's okay. There is an ultimate truth there somewhere about the food, but Paul's saying it's not worth destroying the work of God over an opinion about something like that. It doesn't particularly change your salvation, it doesn't change where you're going eternally. Yes, it's a thing, and we learn more about the heart of God the further we get into it, and that's important and valuable. It's not that we just ignore things, but it also gives us some some ability to change. You know, if I've made up my mind about something about the end times, it's okay if I change my mind. Because my relationship with God and my development with God is always growing. So once upon a time, you might not have been able to eat meat, you poor person but then you came to the realization that God was cool with it, and then you ate meat, and your life was way better. (laughs) Right? We grow and we develop in our understanding of who God is. And so when we cling to something too tightly and we dig our heels in, I'm talking about disputable matters. I'm not talking about whether or not Jesus was the Son of God. I'm not talking about firmly established, indisputable facts. I'm talking about disputable matters, things where we're not entirely clear from the Scripture exactly what they mean. And it's good for us to search those out. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Bible says it's, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to find it out. We are searchers. We're always looking. It's great to investigate the end times and learn about those things. Some of you care about it. Some of you don't. For some of you, it's super relevant. For some of you, it's not. But there is a relevance for all of us to understand and we want to know. And there's reasons for that. Okay? It's really I, I, This is as much about attitude and heart as it is about facts. And so we'll continue to talk about it. That's what's important to me. So, number one, we made this point last week. Jesus returns. Any questions? Jesus is coming back. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. As my favorite theologian Wayne Grudem says. And for those of you that are into systematic theology and you understand those things, you'll see a lot of my framework for how I talk about this does come from Wayne Grudem. I want to give him credit for that. And if you're a nerd like me and you really want to study, uh, that's a great resource. And you can contact me for more information about that later if you wanted to. We talked about the fact that Jesus is returning, and we talked about that we cannot predict the day. Nor should we try. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You do not expect. See, it seems like to me, as I'm reading these passages where we're talking about everything that Jesus predicted about the end or other passages, that there's a sense of urgency sown into our hearts. That's important. You know, just like the bumper sticker we talked about last week. Jesus is returning. Look busy. Why? Because... We don't want to get, we're human and we'll get in this attitude like he ain't coming back for another thousand years and no matter what I do. But, but the scripture sows into us an urgency, thank you Jen, an urgency about watching and being prepared and, and there's parables about it and all kinds of things because I, I think it's so that we, for one, so that we stay motivated about our mission, that it's important and at any time it could change. I think Jesus knew that. I think if Jesus told us all the details, I don't know, he had his reasons. But I also think that um, it's to build an expectation of hope. Something that's right around the corner that is good. You know, the return of Christ is good. It will be good. It will be wonderful. And we're going to continue to talk about it this week. I want to throw in here, too, some thoughts about prophecy uh, that are important to think about because we're diving into the book of Revelation we're looking at prophecies in Thessalonians. We're looking possibly a little bit in Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, all these different uh, places. That we're looking at some of the things Jesus had to say. Not all today. But I think it's important to remind ourselves what the purpose of prophecy is, and when we read these things, to keep them in mind. I want to begin in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. For the one who prophesies speaks to people, for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. When we study the idea of the prophetic gift in the New Testament, you know, Jen's going through her class hearing from God. we got the prophetic team that ministers to people prophetically. God speaks to his people today and through his people. And the reason he does that is to strengthen them, to lead them, to comfort them. And so when we see the, the same is true for the biblical prophecies, they're meant to console and encourage us, lead us. They're not necessarily there for us to use as weapons against our friends. It's not there for us to try and uh, predict, be fortune tellers. That kind of mentality about prophecy is inaccurate. Yes, there are futuristic communication when someone's prophesying, but it is for their strengthening, their comfort, their consolation, their encouragement. So when we read this in Revelation, this vision that John has, we have to remember that it's there to encourage us, not discourage us, not cause us to panic and be fearful if we suddenly realize something in it is happening. But that we would have a hope of our future. Second Peter 1.20 Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's something about uh, a caution about interpretation here. There's, there's this idea that it doesn't come from the will of man we don't force our will into the things God has to say there's a hum, I think there's a humble attitude kind of idea here that we need to take on as we examine the prophetic words in the scripture and also, I want to remind us of this before I get deeper into the subject today is Revelation chapter four verses one and two and this is John telling the story He's just gone through this process of Jesus instructing him to write these letters to these specific churches and then this happened. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was, where? In the spirit first thing I want to establish before we dive into some of the scriptures in Revelation is John is seeing from a spectacular point of view. John is caught up into the heavenlies. He's caught up into the spirit with the things that God is about to show him. There's a See, it's a doorway. What does the doorway represent? Going into another place. John goes into another realm to see the things that he sees. Now, how many of you see in the spirit realm every day? Anybody tell me what it looks like? Colors, shapes, sizes, forms. How does spiritual warfare take place? Do they have swords? Do they fight physically? Is their physical locate? We don't know. It's a mystery. So there's a, again, there's a, a good dose of humility we need to take on when we're examining these passages of Scripture, realizing that God is giving John a spiritual, prophetic point of view about the future. And we know that in... Proper biblical interpretation, you have the four things. I, I hope you guys are remembering these. I bring them up every once in a while. Four principles of biblical interpretation that we know. We have the meaning of the words and individual sentences. So if it says dog in the Bible, I know what a dog is. Right? Just basic language translation. Uh, I know the meanings of the words in their context. What is being spoken of in these situations? I know I have... Um, some historical information that gives me factual information about the passages that I'm reading. So some of the history of the Old Testament and things like that. And then fourthly, and most importantly, and what I want to draw your attention to this morning, is the, te- the overall teaching of Scripture. Now we have to be cautious when we're, when we're coming to a place of really digging in and trying to interpret something that we take into consideration the whole of Scripture. Because sometimes we can kind of get this pet doctrine that then slowly pushes us towards ignoring what the rest of Scripture has to say because we're so latched on to this one thing. But we always have to zoom back out and take in the whole heart of God in circumstances so that we can come to a place of properly understanding, as much as we can, prophecies. Remember we talked about the Jews last week. Hundreds of prophecies about the first coming of Jesus. Not a lot of information about what would happen after that. And we're kind of in that situation today about the second coming. We don't have a lot of information, just glimpses. And they had gotten so ingrained in what they felt like the interpretation was, they missed it. They crucified him. Now, we understand this is part of God's design, but they missed it. Now, I'm not saying we're going to miss it. That's not my point. It, It seems to me that from the scripture, when Jesus returns, ain't nobody missing it. But the point is this, it's about how stubborn we dig our heels in about something that's disputable. We remain open to what God wants to do with us as times go along. We know that people predicted the end of time all the time since, since Jesus left and were fully convinced that they were right and they were wrong. And so we just have to keep an open mind and a humility as we go through. That's not to say that you don't study it, or that you don't wonder, or that you don't form your own opinions. I want you to form your own opinion. I want you to study the Word of God and learn what it says and think about these things. Don't just brush them off to the side. But, all the while understanding that John's view is from a spiritual point of view. Now, if you have a Bible this morning, you're going to want to turn to Revelation chapter 20. I did put the verses up here today. I thought about not doing it, but I knew some of you would... Really appreciate that. And it is a foundational part of talking about the end. If Jesus is coming back, why? What happens after that? What happens when Jesus returns? And so when we look at Revelation chapter 20, we see a significant component of end times theology, of what it looks like. Revelation chapter 20. And I want to begin in verse 1. Now, what has just happened? What's the context? The context is that the rider on the white horse, Jesus, has just returned to the earth. Seems pretty evident in Revelation chapter 19, that's what's gone on, that the king of kings has come back from heaven, that he's dealt with these demonic forces on the earth. And then it says this, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. Come on, the preacher's talking Revelation today. Yeah! How many of you have waited years for that? (laughs) It's fun. It's challenging. It stretches your imagination. Think about this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, and he seized the dragon. Now, the dragon is talked about in earlier prophecies. I can't get into it. I just have to pause here for one second. I am not going to even come close to doing justice on the depth of these subjects, okay? I'm skimming the surface to help prompt some of your thinking and maybe study on your own. I just want to be clear about that. So if you're hardcore about some of these things, you're going to be really disappointed that I don't go deeper, but I'm not going to. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, serpent who is the devil and Satan. It's really important scripture for a number of reasons, Number one, that the dragon that's prophesied about in the early part of Revelation is the devil. And that the devil is Satan. They're all the same person, so to speak. Okay? Very important. Let's go on. And he seized the dragon, that ancient servant, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended." And that he must, after that, he must be released a little while. I want to talk to you today about the millennium. How many of you have heard the word millennium? Not millennial. Not like the, it could be an odd irony by the time it's over. But anyway, the millennium. You start hearing people like, the the millennium, what is it? What's it about? There is a pretty clear picture here in Revelation chapter 20 that there's a thousand, there's this uh, span of time, this era that begins, and it looks like Christ has returned. This angel comes down, binds Satan, shuts him up, seals it in. A thousand years go by. After that, he must be released for a little while. Let's go on. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the, whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or not received its mark on their foreheads and their hands. They came to life, key phrase, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There you see it again, millennium, thousand. For a thousand years they reigned with Christ. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation 20, 1 through 6. So for theologians throughout history, this is a significant passage of Scripture because it it does indicate a significant period of time in which Christ Christ reigns and in which his people reign with him what is the millennium it's been hotly debated for years and years this is fun yeah i'm so glad i get to talk about this today i think it's really important to understand here that when jesus you know there are times throughout history you know, we can get weird about thinking about man what would that be like you're telling me that only some people rise first and they reign with christ on the earth like literally here on the earth for a thousand years, while Satan's not around, and then, and then he comes back? That can be hard to imagine. Well, how does that play out in our reality? That's really fun to think about, and interesting, and a little scary, maybe. What is it like? What is that like? How do we interpret this? How do we understand it? It seems that Christ will return, and there's something called a millennium. So I want to talk about, before we dive into that, the idea that I want you to think about, in history, what we do know for sure, according to the Scripture. In the beginning, when God made Adam and Eve, they were immortal. They lived forever. That's hard to imagine. It's hard to really decisively imagine what the Garden of Eden looked like, what the world was like without sin, where, where Adam named the animals and they ate from the fruit of the garden. I mean, there's just so many things. I mean, they ran around naked for crying out loud. What was that like? You know, I always joke, it was probably warm. That's about it. I don't know, but it sounds amazing. It sounds wonderful. What was going on? But sin changed the world. In, in chapter 3 of Genesis, when, when there's the fall of man, God curses the earth. And he says, because of you. Not because of God, because of man, the earth is cursed. It's not going to yield what you want it to, etc., etc. And we call it the curse, the fall of man. Creation itself dramatically changed at the fall of man. And then you go forward a couple thousand years and and you've got the flood. Now, if you know the book of Genesis and you've studied it ever, the world was not like it is today. Not by a long shot. It didn't rain. You know, it didn't rain. People lived hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, we have actual evidence of things like dinosaurs. When were they? I don't know. But I know that the earth was dramatically different from Adam to Noah. And there's lots of good information out there to study and dive in and shows to watch and stuff like that. It's fascinating. One of the ideas that, that I really find fascinating is it didn't rain because the, the earth itself literally had a kind of a layer of thick moisture water around it. And part of what the flood was is that collapsed on the earth in order to flood the whole earth. And man's life expectancy changed You know, and all those kind of things, UV exposure, all that. Anyway, fun stuff. Can't get into it. My point is, it should not be difficult for us to imagine the possibility of creation itself dramatically changing. Romans chapter 8, the creation waits. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, ultimately so they can be liberated from its decay. Creation is bound to decay. So then when we look into the forward into the future and we see something, a picture of a time frame, a rule of Christ that is very interesting where you have resurrected people and not resurrected people, maybe. How does this work? I just want to make the point that it's, it shouldn't be beyond us to comprehend that the earth itself could go through a dramatic metamorphosis into another era because the Bible's done it before. And so I think, looking at these passages, that when Christ returns, there will be a dramatic shift. So I want to talk real basically, not going to have a ton of time. I'm probably not going to get through them all today. You'll have to come back next week. There you go. Yeah, come back Two weeks in a row back to church. Come on. Most people only attend to church once or twice a month. Can I lure you back two weeks in a row? We're going to get started and see how far we go. I want to talk about three points of view today. Uh, amillennialism. Great, here we go, vocabulary. Postmillennialism and premillennialism. These are three sort of theological words that we apply in order to understand what is this millennium? And why do why have theologians over the years and why have the churches developed these point of views about what the, the reign of Christ really is? And so they're prefixes, sort of give you an idea. By the way, do you know how many times it's possible to misspell the word millennialism? (laughs) I cannot tell you. I want to make that E in the middle and I every time. My spell check about fried on my computer this week as I was typing. Millennialism, amillennialism. So you have amillennialism. So let's think of a different word that uses that prefix. Some people say amillennialism, by the way. They're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I just think of words like asymmetrical. Does anyone say asymmetrical? That doesn't make sense. It's not symmetrical. Or there are other words, right? I'm suddenly drawing a blank. Can you give me one? Agnostic, without knowledge. There's no way to know God. You get a bonus today, Seth. Nice job. Any others? Atypical. There you go. Not typical. Anyone shoot an atypical buck yesterday? Was it? I see a look over here. No, okay, it was typical. All right. Amillennialism is the idea that there's not really a millennium. There's not a literal reign of Christ for a thousand years on earth. Millennium is a figure of speech for a long period of time. And, yeah, when we read the Scripture, we see that sometimes, you know, time can be a really tricky thing in the Scripture. And so, people that are amillennialists would think that, you know, this is sort of a metaphor for a long period of time, and that that millennium is now the church age. Since Christ left the earth and the Holy Spirit came, we've lived in what biblically we call the church age, the age of the church. Christ is resurrected. We are His people who are putting our faith in Him and experiencing salvation while here on the earth. It's the church age that we live in right now, and the return of Christ will change that to another age time will change at that point. But they would argue that millennium is a figure of speech, that now is the church age, now is the thousand years. It's sort of a metaphorical idea for a long span of time, that because Jesus died on the cross and because Jesus had power over Satan and demons, that now Satan's power is diminished. So that's what that old passage about Satan being bound means, that Satan's been bound and his power has been diminished so that the church uh, can, can do its thing, people can get saved, it can grow, all those kind of things. There's not really a literal millennial reign of Christ on the earth. That's just spiritual picturing of, of what's going on in the natural. And I, I could appreciate this point of view. I, I think all these points of view have a lot of valid points and a lot of positive things about them. Okay. We're not going to get haughty, arrogant, pompous, critical, condemning, Ticked off, right? We're going to go through all of these. Because some of you grew up in churches where this was a big deal, where how this was taught was like a deal breaker. You know what? You could be any of these three and still come to church with us, okay? we're We're going to remain, have some flexibility about it. Resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. So the idea of amillennialism is that we're in the church age, and as the church age comes to a close, Jesus will return. Everybody will rise from the dead. There will be judgment, and we will go on to the next phase, which is called the eternal state, where, God, where we're all with God. New heavens, new earth, the eternal state. So we're talking about eras like the church age. Are some of you starting to feel like you're in class? I don't want to bore you. Hang on with me. We're in the church age, then we, then we go on to the eternal state. All of, all of us resurrected, judgment takes place, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, at a quick glance... Or if in just general chat, most people talk this way. That Jesus is going to come, all the dead are going to rise, judgment commences, new heaven, new earth. We all go to our new home, end of story. It's all kind of one event, one moment. That's a basic view of amillennialism. They would, they would say things like in Matthew chapter 28, 18. Jesus said this, all authority in heaven and earth are given to me. Doesn't that mean that he's reigning? He's the boss? If he has all authority and he had authority even back then over Satan and demons, uh, doesn't that mean that now we're in his reign, in his kingdom? It's a good argument. It's one of the things they would point to. Let me see here what else I've got for that. When it says in Revelation chapter 20 that... There's this idea of a first resurrection. A millennialist would argue that this first resurrection is actually when you transfer to heaven. That's your first resurrection. That when you appear on the other side, whatever state we're in at that point with God, we know we're with God. Whatever, whatever condition we're in there, that's the first resurrection, they would say. So it, doesn't, it isn't an earthly resurrection or something like that at the return of Christ, they would argue that. There's a lot of scriptures that when they talk about the resurrection, they talk about it in terms of, if you just read over it, you know, for what it says, it looks like one event. That's interesting. John chapter 5, verse 28, 29, Acts 24, Daniel 12, things like that. I don't have time to get into all that right now. So that's amillennialism at a glance. I want to move on to postmillennialism. What does post mean? After. How many of you are going to watch the post-game show today? No one? Why? Why? <laughs> My team's going to lose anyway. It don't matter. Post-millennialism. Post-millennialism basically is that Jesus returns at the end of, a millennia, of the millennium. Oh, boy, it's going to be a long day. Millennium. At the end of the millennium, Jesus returns. Now, how how does that work with Revelation chapter 20? You know, it's it's difficult to understand. It's difficult to interpret. So, uh, the general idea of post-millennialism is that the gospel is so powerful and such good news that as we, the church, keep spreading the gospel, that gospel will grow in power and it will, in time, overtake the world. So, you know, a lot of us as Americans would argue that a lot of America's foundation is on godly principles, and that was from the influence of the gospel, and so we get this idea that this is going to happen all over the world to a greater extent, to a point where a millennium occurs, a thousand years where the world operates under the principles of Christ. The whole world becomes basically Christian influenced so significantly that a thousand years of awesomeness happens. Peace on earth and things like that. Uh, I I really you know there's some good things about this. I mean there's an emphasis on the power of the gospel, the need for you and I to be spreading the gospel to other people, influencing them. We you know a lot of people have gotten caught up recently with the politics and the gospel stuff because they want their nation to be influenced by gospel principles and godliness, and so they take action with those things. You know these are important things. Postmillennialism actually grows in popularity during revivals. So when God's pouring out His Spirit and powerful things are happening in churches or countries, people in those countries tend to get optimistic about this possibility, that actually this is so awesome what we're experiencing, that it could change the whole world so the world could be at peace with God. And then when that thousand years... So in a way, Christ is reigning, but He's reigning from heaven, and He's reigning through His church, His people. And that, you know, it's just a great time. The Great Commission prompts us this way. There's a parable that they would look at. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches." See, this gospel is meant to become the biggest tree in the garden. It's meant to be something for the world that all the world can roost in its branches. And so they would look at something like this as a reason to advocate for the idea that God is prompting the church to be the one who lead us through this thousand years of awesomeness. I need to come up with a different word. But you get the picture. And so they would look at that that that's powerful. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that optimism. So in times of great revival and positive progress, this tends to grow. Actually, a lot of the American founders were this, believe it or not. And John Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, he was a a revivalist in the United States in the early years. See, I mean, you can imagine, hey, we've got this new country we're going to go take over, and we're going to institute what we think is a godly government. That's our idea, and we believe that this is going to lead the whole world to take on godly government because it's going to be so successful. And Jonathan Edwards had this kind of view. Highly respected, great revivalist. I mean, shoot, who wouldn't respect a guy that leads an enormous revival in the United States, right? So this is a a respectable point of view in the theological world. And the last one, I don't have time to talk about. I'm just going to say its name, and we're going to move on, and we'll talk about it more next week. It's pre-millennialism is the idea that Jesus returns and that before an earthly reign, he returns to the earth and he begins to reign on the earth for a thousand years. This earth. Believers are resurrected alongside, or uh, believers are resurrected and reigned with him. Satan is bound and released at the end. He is crushed and all rise to final judgment. I will go into detail about this and other issues surrounding Premillennialism next week, and then there's other detailed breakouts of this. Um, you know, pre meaning before. There's one called pre. Uh, there's a dispensational premillennialism, a pre tribulational premillennialism. Like, okay, let's not go there right now. My head's already hurting. Would you stand, please? Okay, so we looked at all this stuff about the end. It's let your imagination think about this. It's awesome. What will it be like when Jesus returns? What will the world be like? What will I be like? Johnny and I went hunting and hiked seven miles on Friday as part of the youth hunt. I have muscles in places I didn't know I had them. But someday I'll have a different body. What's that like? What will it be like to be on the earth with Jesus? Oh, it's just amazing. This prophecy should give us hope. Prophecy should give us steadiness. These prophetic words are about our future hope, not our future demise. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I thank you this morning for your word. God, you, this is amazing. I mean, I'm confident when, when times end and we look back, I mean, just like we can look back on the, the Old Testament and go, wow. I mean, it, it was right there, but wow, you, you wove a mystery in all those prophetic words and you fulfilled it. And we are amazed at you. And I'm confident that at the end, we'll also look back at the New Testament and we'll say, wow, you wove a mystery in there. You are amazing. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to find it out. You're awesome, Lord. And we thank you for that. God, I pray that each heart would be encouraged. God, as, as we navigate wild times, different things, challenges, Lord, that our hearts would be established, firm on you, the rock, firm that, Lord, you are coming for your people, and your word will be fulfilled. So, God, we glorify you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.